Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice. I'm Jeannie Rice, your co-host. We also have co-hosts Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pichet. We will share with you the wisdom of the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We offer tools and support five days a week. We will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love in Aramaic, Brachma. Michael is the author of the book, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information about the forgiveness process, please visit www.whyagain.org. And now, welcome to the show, Mind Shifters Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio. I'm Tim Hayes. I'm your host for the first hour. And today is Thursday, September 28th, 2023. As always, we're grateful to everyone who's joining us here today, whether you're listening live or through the archives. As we spend another couple of hours teaching and supporting people in using some of the most powerful effective, efficient, and accessible tools I've ever encountered. These tools are available absolutely free through the tireless efforts of Dr. Michael and Jeannie Rice. On the website at whyagain.org, if you go to that website and click on the two words that say start here in the upper left-hand corner, it will take you to a page where you can download and read Chapter 24 of Dr. Michael Rice's book. The book is titled, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? And that chapter of the book contains a narrative description and explanation of the primary tool in this work. That tool is called the Reality Management Worksheet, sometimes called the Reality Management Wake-Up Sheet. And it's a tool I've been using to great effect for 19 years to improve the quality of my life and most of my relationships and to turn any negative emotional experience I have into part of the infallible guidance system that each and every one of us has been given. You can also download the actual worksheet process itself. It's a simple PDF file. Click the link, download it, print it off, copy it as often as you'd like, and use it over and over again absolutely free. You can also go to your app store and type in the three words, Heartland Aramaic Forgiveness. And if you choose to do that, before you're done typing the word forgiveness, you'll see the glowing heart icon. If you tap on that, it will let you download a completely free and private app that contains the Reality Management Worksheet. It contains an abbreviated version of that worksheet process. And it contains a copy of the Dragon Klingon game, which is a wonderful way to introduce these tools to even younger audiences. And we hope people do all of that soon and often, primarily because it tends to improve the quality of people's lives the more they actively engage in the use of these tools in their lives, and secondarily because it tends to prompt comments, questions, answers, and testimonials. And if you have any of those to share with us, we'd greatly appreciate you doing so by giving us a call at 563-999-3581 and press 1 on your phone. 
And or if you are listening through the archives, you can send us an email at tjh at mindshifters-academy.org. Or you can email genie at j-e-a-n-i-e at whyagain.org. That's w-h-y-a-g-a-i-n dot o-r-g. And if you send us a question or comment that way, we will address it on the Internet show and then as time allows, um, send you a notification about what day and time we were able to uh, address those comments or questions, and you can listen back to the archive for the feedback. And as we mentioned on a regular basis, we're very grateful whenever anybody decides to do that because it makes it far easier for us to live into our intention with this work. The intention with this work is to be a service, and that's just a whole heck of a lot easier to do when people give us active feedback about what's working for them and what isn't working for them. And if you're able to do that, we are grateful. And if you're not, we hope that what you hear, what what you have available as resources and the live show and the archives and the tools is useful. There are some other things that are made available. Michael and Jeannie do some online projects and still point breathing and book club discussions, etc., that you can access on get information about on the whyagain.org website. And we also offer uh, support groups on Tuesday and Thursday night from 6.30 to 9 p.m. Central Time. And if you're interested in joining those or having the information to pass along to somebody else, all the information you would need to join us absolutely free is available on the MindShiftersAcademy.org website. Separate information, login information page for Tuesdays and separate one for Thursdays. And um, we'd appreciate it if you'd share that with people and or join us yourself. Um, there were uh, a number of things that have come up since yesterday's show that uh, I've been inclined to share. One of them was I was listening back to uh, an interaction with Susan Bingham on the call, and she was saying something about how, you know, our, our conscious logical mind and our stories is all we have to rely on. And it's one of those uh, cases, an example of where I clearly wasn't, it was either near the end of the, of the call or I clearly wasn't having my, my best day that day because as I heard this in the replay, I thought, well, that's not all we have to rely on. That's just one aspect of what we have to rely on. That is our conscious logical mind. And we've also got our emotional response. And there's the key in this work that we talk about 
so clearly is whenever I have a negative emotional state active in my mind, I can know with absolute certainty that whatever my mind is showing me at that time is at best only partially true and probably way off the mark. Probably way off the mark. Another way that it's come to me to say in one of the support groups recently was, I am never upset for the reasons my mind is telling me I'm upset. Another way to say that is, anytime I'm upset, I can know that my mind is lying to me. It's not intentional. It's not that you know it wants me to be miserable. It's the egoic mind. It is a product of the training, the conditioning. It's what Dr. Michael Rice would call the automatic response mechanism or automatic decision-making. There's no higher faculties of spiritual wisdom or choice available. It's just what Guy Finley would call the mechanical level of mind churning away. How can I know that? I can know that it's just my mechanical level of mind churning away when I get in the car and I seamlessly operate it and I find myself halfway home and I don't really remember the last three or four stoplights I went through. It's operating, that mechanical level of mind, it's at its best right there. It's making it so I don't have to relearn how to drive a car every time I get into one. And everything's going well. I can also know that mechanical level of mind is operating whenever I'm feeling a negative emotional state. And that's my alarm system to tell me that the mechanical level of mind is not useful here. It's not functioning in the proper way. It's setting me up for an even bigger fall if I can't interrupt the process and introduce direct observation and living in the question. So, it isn't true that we only have our conscious logical mind and our stories about what things mean to fall back on. We also have this alarm system, which can be viewed very clearly as our negative emotional states arising as guidance. And like I talk to people about, as a human being, if you're like most of us, you probably got a logical side of your mind and, and a separate emotional side of your mind. Also, if you're like most of us human beings, you're going to find out that you make your best decisions when you've got good access to both the logical input and the emotional input. And the third thing is, if you're like most of us human beings, whenever your emotional intensity level, whether it's a positive or a negative emotion, whenever it gets up to like, on a scale of 0 to 10, 0 being no emotion and 10 being the highest it could be, whenever you get up to about a 6.5 or a 7 on that scale of 0 to 10, your emotional life takes over and disconnects the access to your conscious logical mind. Your conscious logical mind, your figure-it-out part of your mind, might 
have all kinds of ideas, but it can't access the control panel in your life, and your emotions are running the day. The good news is you don't have to wait until you're triggered so heavily that your conscious logical mind is in the back of the bus where it can't reach the wheel and the pedals. You can learn to monitor your upset level more and more day to day and have that become a part of your regular mode of operating so that you notice when your intensity of emotion level is going from a 2 to a 3 to a 4, and you can use your conscious logical mind and your tools and skills to intervene and defuse the emotion before you get triggered to such a high level that your conscious logical mind can't have any input. So we don't just have our conscious logical mind and the stories it tells us. We also have this alarm system of our intense emotions. Another thing is that I wanted to bring into the show today is that I was listening to, as I do from time to time, listening back to the book from Pema Chodron titled Start Where You Are. And we had talked about last week or the week before how um, Joseph Campbell had done some writing about how Nietzsche did the trick for him because Nietzsche talked about loving your fate. Nietzsche talked about understanding that there's it's possible to put the filter on on everything that happens in your life and the filter says this is just what i need this is an adventure this is a challenge this is going to help me grow and learning to love whatever unfolds in my life and we talked about how I gotten some pushback on that and there's all kinds of things that are bad and wrong and I can judge them that way and I can say this should never happen and but there's also the possibility to put on the filter that says this is what I need and Nietzsche called it loving your fate. And In the book by Pema Chodron titled Start Where You Are, they're talking about different slogans that they use in the Buddhist tradition. And they use them as points of focus for meditation or as a mantra, etc. And as I was listening this morning, I heard from another tradition basically the same thing. And the slogan was, when the world is filled with evil, transform all mishaps into the path of Bodhi. Bodhi is an enlightened one. See everything that happens as part of the path, part of something you can use to grow, to be a blessing in the moment. All these different ways of talking about it, it's the same thing. 
And it doesn't mean that you necessarily like or jump up and down for joy for this or that that happens. It does mean that you don't look at it as a roadblock. You look at it as a stepping stone. And you transform all mishaps into the path of enlightenment. So, again, a variety of different resources all pointing in the same direction and sometimes saying almost exactly the same thing. And if I'm, you know, uh, if I'm raised in a, in a Western mind that, that has me relying almost exclusively on my logic, and has me trained in my schooling and in my family life that when I get the answer correct, I get rewarded, and when I get the answer, quote, wrong, close quotes, I get punished. It's easy to see how our mental emotional conditioning has us trying to figure everything out, has us trying to label this is right, this is wrong, this is good, this is bad. And from that position we create the vast majority of our suffering because we fight against the flow of life. So just a little couple of sidebars before coming back to the book Choose Again by Diedrich Wolzak. Again, our call number is 563-999-3581. I encourage you to call, raise a question, even if I'm in the middle of reading something, or now before I start reading, 610, is this Susan? Hi, Dr. Tim. Quick question. Yesterday during the reading, uh, Dieterich Walzak was saying something about why he didn't stick with the AA program. It didn't go far enough for him. And I wondered, I haven't got the book yet, it's on order. I wonder if you remember what he said. Yes. Yes, I do. Any other questions? No. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you want me to talk about it? <laughs> <laughs> the essence of it is that he believes that when you label an addiction as a disease process and you say, I am powerless over this substance, that you're missing the point, that you're talking about it from the conscious logical perspective and you're not talking about the higher self. And that he understands that while his conscious logical self might be powerless over this, that, or the other thing, his true nature is not. And so he understands that, here's the, the, the paragraph, he says, I went to Alcoholics Anonymous for help and I learned their perspective on the issue. That is that alcoholism is an illness and I, as an alcoholic, am powerless over it. He says, I believed this for a while, 
But after having worked on myself using the choose again methodology, I came to understand that it's the ego that believes it's powerless over alcohol and many other things. And he says, now I would never say that I am powerless over anything. This is because I've learned that the truth of who I am, in capital T, truth, beyond the ego, is a, an infinitely powerful being, not powerless. And so AA is wonderful. It's helped millions of people. And they might be able to go further if they helped people go to the cause rather than staying stuck at the effect level, which is this drinking, which, you know, drinking and being addicted and is an effect of some deeper problem. It's, he's mm. proposing that it's not just you have an allergy to alcohol. And he says if you use a process like his, you start asking questions like, why was I drinking in the first place? Where did that come from? What's the purpose of my drinking? What's its function? When I'm drinking, what is it that I get to be right about? And when I start unraveling that, this is very similar to Dr. Michael Rice's approach to things. You know, when he helped people dismantle what he believes is the underlying pain that they're using the drug of choice or behavior or whatever to run away from, there the need to engage in that behavior or that drug or that alcohol falls away. And people just put it down and walk away and they don't have to go back because the pain that they're trying to get away from has been dismantled. Does mm. that make sense? It does make sense and I have a question. Now I do have a question. My oldest grandson is in AA and getting a tremendous amount out of it and I wouldn't, you know, I, I, I just listened to him and he, he has said... Whether I had trauma as a child or not makes no difference in this sense. If I, what, when I took a sip of alcohol, I was, I turned into somebody else who wanted to drink and I couldn't control it or didn't control it. That would have been there anyway. I am looking at the trauma. I'm looking at the interaction and the reasons I may have been drinking in some ways, but he said, I, I really am an alcoholic. It's a physiological thing. And I don't argue with him because he's doing really well and I don't want to mess with that. But I do want to mess with it. <laughs> I do want to mess with it, I guess. Why? the language thing. Because Why? I would like him to, because of what Diederik just said, is there, you don't have to think that about yourself once the trauma material, the depression and the anxiety, which is there for him in spades now that he's not drinking, he's working at growing using his own types of tools. Okay, so here, but, here's the phrase that just popped into my head. Okay. He who is without sin should cast the first stone. Okay. Have you solved all of your problems personally, Susan Bingham? Are you no, gliding through life Have in I? perfect joy and happiness? No. Okay. okay. Then, then it might. 
be in your best interest to withdraw some of this energy that you're focusing on your grandson, who you already said is doing great with AA, mm-hmm. and direct it towards yourself and little things you can improve. Because as the, the, the truth that I've observed over and over again is that as a parent, as a grandparent, as a sibling in a family, the best thing I can do for everybody else is clear up my own stuff. Because I Mm. teach most through modeling. I -hmm. don't teach very much through lecturing. Mm -hmm. So when you've got that urge, and, oh, I just wish he would, and, oh, Diedrich said this, and it would be so great for him, recognize there's an urge in you. Yeah. It's an yeah. addiction to focus on somebody else and, so and dismantle it and dismantle it. Mm-hmm. Recognize it yep. as, uh, you know, going for your drug of choice. Because if it's not mm-hmm. focusing on you and your direct relationship to your higher self and how to dismantle everything that gets in the way of you experiencing your higher self, it's a trap it's an addiction it's a distraction I totally get that in fact what comes to mind is something I learned when I was studying psychotherapy training early early when we were doing transactional analysis and I was blown away by the idea that we have a, a critical parent which is like the power person and a nurturing parent which is a healthy nurturing parent but we also have a not-okay nurturing parent. And I do that a lot. Okay. So I've been being... Uh, you're right. I, I, it's a little too urgent. I recognize that. That's... Yep. Okay. Thanks. Yeah, just use that as the wake-up call to say, oh, I'm... Focusing on stuff outside of myself in the moment where inside of me I'm not in perfect peace. That means that's my alarm system. And the most useful thing I can do in response to that alarm system is stop the bus, take the breath, Mm -hmm. redirect the focus of my attention inside and ask myself, okay, why is this alarm system going off within me? What is it in me mm-hmm. that's off the mark right now? Work yeah, to dismantle that and then take a look at what's going on in the world around me that I might have some impact on. Mm-hmm. Right. That's good. Thank you. You're most welcome and deserving. And that's a wonderful point for most of us listening to this to examine in our own lives. Why? Because we're living in a culture that really wants us to be directed outside of ourselves so that we think we need to go buy this and consume that and you know follow these people and those people and it's just it's our it's our it's part of the unproductive nature of our culture. Mm. 
this is the third time yeah. already today that you know the the first two were in in private sessions this is the third time today that it's come up where the message is the same look you're not feeling very solid and good and connected to your higher self within your own mind body energy system and the words coming out of your mouth are about this other person mhm criticizing what they're doing or having a better way for them to do it or wanting something better or different in their life it doesn't matter it's all the same thing it's that other directedness in response to a discomfort within myself i might as well be chugging a fifth of vodka <laughs> yeah you're talking about the difference i'm talking about the difference between what and what perception perception and what's the word projection i'm i'll give the definitions for me perception means i am picking up on something of course my reaction to it is a dead giveaway of whether you know i'm an okay person while i'm perceiving this but the other is projection that's the unhealthy one i guess and perception may or may not be but yeah with the situation with michael in our basement um i've been as you know calling around to different housing um service places for subsidized housing and it turns out that tim bingham when michael first moved in with us tim took him to one of the agencies i called and they said oh we've got him here in the system yeah, he uh, he didn't follow through, and I said, was there any reason? And he said, not really. Uh, we just put it down as lack of motivation. That's their experience, which seemed like a perception. That was an objective observation on their part without knowing any details about Michael. And I felt a little bit exonerated. Not that I have any excuse to feel frustrated ever, but I thought, that's their take, and that's been my take. Well, at least our takes are in sync with one another. Then, of course, I have to do my own work about feeling frustrated and all that stuff, which, boy, I've been doing. And anyway, so when, I, when I'm talking about my grandson who's doing so well, I'm just thrilled that he's doing the way he's doing, and I... Uh, it's just wonderful to see how healthy his brain is despite years of drinking, where in an older person it might ruin, have ruined his brain. He seems so well. So what am I doing wanting to tell him about Diederich? But I have restrained myself. You'll be glad here. I have not sent anything to him because I, I do smell that rat of feeling a little too urgent about sharing this. So I'm going all over the place again. Well, I'm I'm right here with you. I don't think you're going all over the place. I think it's a really useful thing for you in this moment and for most of us on the call. And to understand if I'm not in this in the present moment completely um, in touch with, consciously aware of my higher self and the bliss of life and 
and I'm focused on anyone or anything outside of me, that's a wake-up call. Mm-hmm. Even if I can describe it or you know disguise it as loving and well-intentioned. Mm-hmm. It has to do with how we're feeling about it, right? It's just what's happening on the inside. Yeah, if I'm directly, consciously aware of my true nature as love and able to extend that to others and aware of their true nature the same way, if I'm if I'm in that mode and then I'm thinking about somebody else, great, fine. It's probably just a, an extension of the loving energy. But if I'm not in that mode and I'm thinking about somebody else, good, bad, or otherwise, it's a distraction. It's an alarm system I could use to wake myself up to the fact that I'm off the mark here. It doesn't matter. Right, that's a tall order. Yeah, but it's a good one, right? I mean, it's it's yeah. a good uh, awareness of a, a useful application of my focus or my negative emotion. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter how much I tell myself, oh, yes, but I just want my grandson to be even better, and it doesn't matter. No, you're right. If I'm not in that space of being directly connected to my awareness of my true nature and the true nature of everybody else, then it's probably just a distraction. It's probably just a drug of choice. It's an addictive process acting out. And I can just wake up to it and choose again. Right. But the logical thing in the meantime was for all of us to go in and become hermits until we're ready, and none of us are no, doing no, no, that. No, so no, the no, best no, 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 no. Why do you go from one extreme to another? That's not. You don't have to be a hermit. Being a hermit would steal from your family, your grandsons, etc., the active experience of you living into your true nature. <laughs> trying. To. We don't want you to go isolate. <laughs> We just we just want you to be aware of the fact that when you're thinking, oh, this person really needs to do this, that's probably a distraction from you and your own issues. That's all. Mm-hmm. So we live for the parallel lives. No, and I'm not a hermit, but and this is my experience that my higher mind tells me certain things, and my feelings might not be in line with that, but I'm acting. Uh, as best I can out of my higher mind. I'm not in a state of bliss, to be sure, but I am trying to apply that wonderful definition of humility of seeing the highest and best in myself and in the other person and operating only from that. Yeah, I get that, but I don't. Uh, none of us does it. I don't think it's just me. I think we all don't reach that mark and yet we're functioning out in the world in some sort of hybrid way until we're ready to really roll that's the truth that's the truth are you thinking I'm saying something other than that no okay Uh, I I don't think you're saying it's possible to be there all the time and act out of that all the time. I've never thought you'd said that. I'm just saying that there are these 
tells, telltale signs, these alarm systems that we can learn to interpret differently than what our culture mm-hmm. or our family tradition has has presented to us. Right. And so, you know, if if you have any thoughts about, oh, I really wish my grandson would this or that, and you're not already there yourself, probably a better use of your energy is to turn the focus inside. This is why I write it up in one of my bottom line observations. I turn the focus inside, and I work on trying to become more of the kind of person I want my children to be. Or in this case, my grandchildren. Mm. That's a better use of my energy than to try to lecture them or to nudge them or you know, set it up so that they get introduced to something and they think it's coming from somebody else. All of that kind of manipulation and machinations, that's okay, but it's not as efficient as just turning the focus inside myself and working to become the kind more of the kind of person that I would hope them to be. Because I love the vast that. majority of what they learn from me comes by watching how I live my life. Mm. Great to be reminded of that. It sort of takes the weight off. It take it brings the energy back in and it takes a sense of false responsibility off. It's good. One of the functions of this radio show is constant rerouting of the direction we're going in or I'm going in anyway. It's just good. Well, I think it's the the truth for all of us, right? I mean, that's why why would I go back and reread Pema Children's book Start Where You Are? Mm. Why would I reread or listen again to Alan Cohen's The Dow Made Easy or Course in Miracles Made Easy, or why would I read again the book by Anthony DeMello titled Awareness or Take Flight? Mm. For the same mm-hmm. thing, it's just a constant reset, a constant reminder. Mm. And to good advantage in my life. And if I find at some point that I'm doing that and it's not leading to good advantage, then I'll stop and I'll try something else. Mm-hmm. But as long as it keeps leading me to feeling better, catching things, changing things for the better in my life, I'll keep doing it. Whether mm-hmm. it's this internet show, doing it live, or re-listening to the archives, or it's rereading my favorite books, or like we did in the support group the other night, you know, listening to Michael Singer's lectures again. It helps me have the reset you're talking about. Mm. So, we have another hand up. I will turn on the microphone as per our agreement. Area code 541, you're in the air. Hello, area code 541. Hello, I had to get to the mute button. All right. This is Sylvia. 
Um, great Welcome. conversation. Uh, triggered a whole bunch of thoughts for me. Good thoughts. And just an awareness of my life process. Um, the uh, totally busted. That the, my fix it. Let me fix you. Let me show you a better way. Is uh, one of my great uh, figuring it out methods, and uh, one of the things that I put on other people, and I'm not even aware of it. So now I'm asking for constant feedback from people <laughs> to try to bring myself into a place of. Uh, seeing how they view me as well as how I view me. And I like everything you said. I'd like to say that um, I went through Al-Anon and I went through Overeaters Anonymous. So I have a, and I had an uncle that went to Alcoholics Anonymous. So there was a time where I was focusing on the big blue book of AA. And probably over a span of 20 years, either passively or, or actively involved. And um, I realize now that it was a perfect stepping stone for me to get where I am today. I couldn't have done it without those 12-step programs, or let's put it this way. I use those 12-step programs to my advantage, and I still today use all the slogans. I only have one book left that I reference to occasionally, and that's a woman way, a woman's way through the twelve steps, which is a Hazelton Press book. And every now and then I dip into it. However, I too had to walk away from Al-Anon. Actually, I didn't have to. I chose to walk away from Al-Anon because the languaging was so restrictive, and I felt it was disempowering rather than empowering. And so I continued my journey onward. And I think that was one of the whys in the road that I chose that eventually led me to the Aramaic Gospel of Michael Rice and why is this happening again. So I offer that. I have a whole bunch of other things. Um, One of the things I'm learning is that it's all practice and it's all about whole brain functioning of which is a practice in the ever-present now. The minute I get into regret or anxiety, shame or guilt, or any number of things, I can instantly know I'm not in the present moment. I'm in the past. And also, I do not trust my perception because I have no way of knowing other than the fruits of my actions and my feelings and my thought patterns what happens as a result. Do I uh, walk in joy and love and peace, or am I in foment of some kind, um, reproach of some kind, some sort of uh, self-disgust or other disgust, and also um, there's no joy. I'm just flatlined. So I wanted to offer that also. I try to stay in process, Uh, I don't often ask for feedback on my progress because I understand that is at the base of my perfectionism. Um, Let me hear you you what you're saying. You don't often ask for for feedback on your progress? 
I don't. Is that what you said? I, I, I sometimes, bec- yes, because I can, I'm a people pleaser. And I can uh, get into that place very easily if I'm paying too much attention to other people's opinions of me or perceptions about me. And I have no any way of knowing whether my perceptions are true, so I will ask for feedback on how they interpreted my perceptions or my my behaviors for their perceptions so I can get a better idea. It's going I thought I just heard I thought I just heard you say that you don't often ask for feedback. Oh, is there a disconnect there? <laughs> And then in the explanation of that, I thought I heard you say, I need feedback because sometimes my own perceptions are off. So I'm, 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 let, let's try to reel this in a little bit and help me follow what you're saying. I, um, I suppose the image I get is walking the middle place between people-pleasing and conviction that I'm right, maybe, right and wrong, that would probably be. So when I ask for feedback, I usually ask for information that I can bring into my hopper or my, you know, throw on the table, so to speak, that includes all of the other information I get including my emotional state, including my actions, including my perceptions, because I don't, uh, uh, my, my, my brain is a self-evidentiary device, and so uh, there are times when I don't trust myself. There are times when I trust myself too much. Okay, so in this work, one of the things that we would say is if you think you're right, and you're in any kind of turmoil or upset, your mind is lying to you. It's very, very simple. Now, when that's happening, if you're feeling strong enough and you really do want to feel better, it's not a bad idea to ask somebody that you trust and respect for feedback. But if you think and and you like being right and you think you're right and you're in any kind of turmoil or upset... Your mind is lying to you. That's just one of the basic observations in this work. Right. And on that, I'm actively practicing. Like the other day, I asked for feedback, and I felt fairly confident within myself that I was in a strong place to get good feedback and that I wanted to... um, uh, Let me just a moment... Are you back? Oh, I'm here. Um, I had a call come in, and I had to try to dis- detach myself from our conversation so I could put it on hold. Um, I wanted to say that that I felt you said really the other good day you asked for yeah, feedback, other, right, from from a couple, and because I was fairly clear that 
other feedback I'd gotten was not my motive, my MO or my intention. So so I understand what you're saying. And I will probably have to get back on the show talking to me while I tell this person that I'll call her later, okay? And I'll get back on. All right. I'll meet you so you can do deal with that. And we have about 10 minutes left. If you have comments or questions, if any of this discussion is resonating for you, I mean, the essence of this, what I'm getting from what Solinda was talking about, is something that we all have to deal with at some level or another, especially if we have defined ourselves as um, Solinda did, as a people pleaser, that uh, if I'm asking somebody else for advice, I might be more inclined to follow whatever their advice is, even if it's not what's best for me, just because of that people-pleaser tendency. And as you might be able to imagine, that's not going to be very productive. And long-term, that's not what we're going for here. Long-term, what we're going for in this work is to help each and every person who engages in this work to learn to tune into their own inner wisdom, their own connection to a source of wisdom that will go way beyond what their conscious logical mind could ever provide for them and help them at very, very basic levels stay calm and choose behaviors, choose thought patterns that are far more productive, that yield life events, life results that they prefer to a large degree over what happens when they get angry or tense or scared or feel shame or guilt and try to act from that. So, you know, the the, the key is, uh, you know, a lot of people ask, well, how do I know if this is my insight or my intuition or just my ego telling me this or that? And the best determiner for that that I've ever run across is that when it's insight, when it's intuition, it's going to be, it's going to come with a certainty and a calmness that I'm never going to have when it's my ego. My ego is always going to be chattering. It's always going to be wondering what if. It's always going to be providing second and third and fifth guesses. Area code 618, you're in the air. Hey, Dr. Tim, this is Gail. Hello. Welcome. Did, did you hear me? Or can you Gail, hear me? can you hear me? I can hear you. All right, how can we help you? Or what would you um, like to I, I'm, I'm I'm driving, so I just want to make sure that my you can hear me with my Bluetooth. If not, I'll go ahead and disconnect it. I and can hear you. Say what I'm. Can, you can hear me. Okay, I hear you. Okay. Um, the reason why I was calling, of course, is because of what the 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 conversation about Alcoholics Anonymous, and you know that I'm gonna I'm gonna put my two cents in with it. Um, 
I had some disturbance come up um, hearing both of the readings yesterday and the day before uh, about um, Mr. Wolzak's experience with Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, I think the way that you described it to Susan earlier about focusing on the effect, um, the physical aspect of it, um, is a part of it. Um, the first step of Alcoholics Anonymous is we admitted we are powerless over alcohol that our lives have become unmanageable. And a lot of people, when they arrive in Alcoholics Anonymous, it is all about abstaining from alcohol because of the, what alcohol does to the, the alcoholic. We're missing enzymes in the metabolic process, and um, and we have to abstain in order for our lives to be better. But it's a two-part step. Um, and the first part of that, that step, admitting that we are powerless over alcohol, is the physical aspect, and it is an effect. Um, that our lives have become unmanageable. A lot of people think that our lives have, have become unmanageable is about what happens to us while we've been drinking. And that is not true. Um, our lives that become unmanageable is the cause. My life could be unmanageable whether I'm drinking or not. So unmanageability is about my thinking. So I have a thought first, a feeling next, and I want to change the way that I feel by putting the chemicals in my body. So what happens when I work the rest of the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous is about having a spiritual experience because this is considered a spiritual malady. It's also considered a, it's considered a threefold disease, physical, mental, and emotional that's put together, and spiritual. So the rest of the steps are put in place for us to have a spiritual experience so we, our thinking starts to change. And then when our thinking starts to change, then our feelings start to change, and the necessity to drink becomes less and less. In the inventory steps, which is four, five, and also also ten and eleven, um, if you want to get down to it, in the inventory steps, it talks about in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous that we are getting down to causes and conditions. We're getting down to the causes. We're looking at our thinking. And a lot of times, our thinking comes down to our survival skills, our belief systems about us and, and the world around us. And, and there's a very nifty exercise in there called the, the fearless, searching and fearless moral inventory, which is our step four. Um, and what that is is about looking at the facts. It's a fact-finding, fact-facing situation or exercise to where we are looking at the causes and conditions and the lies that we believe about ourselves. So I have concern and disturbance um, that Mr. Wolzak has that in his book that we don't get down to causes and conditions in 12-step groups because we do. The tools are there. Um, the tools are there um, for the people that find other people that know how to use them. And so... Um, and I'm looking forward to um, hearing the rest of this book being read. Um, I, I'm curious. I haven't had a chance to get a hold of it or, or read it myself. I, wa I want to see what the, the six steps of choose, choose Now is 
because I'm really curious if it's the same thing that I found in the way I mastered in chapter three. Um, I wonder if it's the same. I don't know. I don't know that yet. But I just, well, I just so wanted to let add me, that. Let me, let me thank you for the call and tell you that you're, if you listened very carefully to the reading, you would hear, oh, I don't have the right thing up, but you would hear what he says is he only stuck around for a few months with Alcoholics Anonymous. Yeah, and right. so, so as he you did, know, he did as, to the place, well, as, as you know, even if he had gone through the 12 steps with somebody, you know, once or twice, he probably wouldn't have developed the understanding of the depth and the richness of the tools that someone like you, who's been at it for years and working and willing to take in input from Dr. Michael Rice's work and Guy Finley's stuff, et cetera, and integrate it and dig deep and understand there are very rich tools involved in the AA program. He didn't stick around long enough to develop that or to even see what you're highlighting is that a lot of what he's saying he does that uh, the 12 steps don't is exactly what the 12 steps does for somebody who stays with it and develops a rich program and integrates that into their life and relationships. So I thank you for that alert and awareness and as somebody who you know, knows how the, the value of these tools and what happens with the upset that comes up, just encourage you to do some yes. tapping and some worksheets on that upset because it's not about what he said in the book. And, again, yeah, exactly. thank you for the exactly. input because it's the, it's the validation that there is such powerful synchronicity between the tools that Dr. Michael Rice teaches and the tools that Diedrich Wolzak is going to put out in this book and, and what the tools that are available in the 12-step program for those who go deep enough and, you know, and really take ownership of the application of those tools. Absolutely. So and I thank you for the input. I'm going to mute, my, I'm going to mute myself. Um, the Al-Anon 12 steps and the, the steps that are, are the exact same thing. Al-Anon, uh, Al-Anon adopted the 12 steps from Alcoholics Anonymous. There is no difference in the steps. I'm powerless over alcohol no matter whose body it goes into. And no matter whose body it goes into, my life is still unmanageable. And so the only difference between the Al-Anon 12 steps and the Alcoholics Anonymous' 12 steps is the, the 12 steps, where it, um, it says that we carry the message to other alcoholics, obviously for Alcoholics Anonymous members, and then it says uh, for Al-Anon 12 steps, it says carry the message to others. So I, I just wanted to make just wanted to point that out as well. And thank you for allowing right. me the time to share and. Have a blessed rest of your day. Look forward to seeing you at support group tonight. Or All right. not necessarily wonderful. You, but participate. All right. Wonderful. Thank you for the call. And we're down to our last minute, so I will thank you both, Susan and all three, Susan and Celinda and Gail. And I will remind us all that we come from love. We're made of the stuff we call love. We actually are love, and everything else is false. Welcome, Jeannie Rice. Thank you, Dr. Tan. You're most welcome and deserving. 
have a wonderful show. Thanks. So welcome, everybody, to the second hour of MindShifters Radio. And today is Thursday, September 28, 2023. And our call-in number is 563-999-3581. And press 1, and that puts you into queue to talk to us. And we would love to hear your comments and questions because that makes this your show. And uh, while we're waiting on Michael to dial in, I'll just say that I was able to um, first edit out to pull out just the second hour of yesterday's show and then run it through a transcript. So if Terry's with us, um, I did send that to him last night. Of course, the transcript is a little jumbled in a couple of places, but it did a pretty good job of it. And so... uh, you know, that is something then that, that people can do. Uh, and just, I had looked up there. We started this show January 31st of 2011. So that's, as of yesterday, 3,303 hours of one-hour shows. And then Dr. Tim began uh, doing the second hour, or the first hour. We do the second now. Uh, he began that on March the 4th, 2019. So that's been four and a half years that we've had another hour of shows, and that makes a total of 4,496 hours of archive. Of course, there's been a couple of days during that 12 years that, you know, they would have some kind of technical issue and we couldn't get on the show or whatever, but uh, excluding that, we've still got almost 4,500 hours in the archives. So you can go back and listen to those shows. There's a lot of information. If you know, in the beginning, I didn't keep notes during the show, and so if you ever listen to one of the older ones that doesn't have a description to it, kind of take a highlight of what the show was about and drop me an email at Jeannie J E A N I E at whyagain.org, and I will and tell me what day it was and give me your synopsis and I'll put that on the website. Sometimes that helps, you know, if somebody's looking for a show that talked about, say, codependency. And then it would bring all of those up. So it does help to have those notes in there. And tried to keep up with most of it for the last few years, but in the beginning I did not. So if you listen to one of the older shows, I'd appreciate the help on doing that to put the notes out there for everybody else who might be searching for something. And I believe... um, that Perry was going to call back in today and we were going to continue the conversation. Michael went over yesterday. He was talking about um, the particles and the waves and Marcel Vogel and the Delaware camera. And I put links in yesterday's show where you can click and read up about that. And so they were talking about that and, and collapsing the what's in the reality in your conscious or unconscious mind, and being able to see more of what's really there. And so I think he was going to call back in, and they were going to continue that conversation, so I'll wait for him to call in. But in the meantime, if you have a question, press 1, and that puts your hand up, and then I know that you want to talk. And we did have a couple of people called in uh, at the latter part of the show and raised their hand yesterday, and we didn't get to them. So if you're one of those people, then pressure 1 earlier. And let's get you in there in the show. And so 
we'll wait for Michael to dial in. You know, we, he's been working on the long form of the pseudo-solutions of the non-being mind, uh, the power person worksheet that we only use during intensives, but he did email that to several people to get their feedback. And so if you're one of those people, then please get back with him and let him know what you think. It's very detailed. It's 14 pages. And uh, we did hear from one person. They said that they didn't want to go that deep. And so, you know, there's the regular power person worksheet that's one page long on the website. And they said they preferred that. They didn't want to go as deep as the 14 pages took them. There is now on the website, you can go and pull up the pseudo-solutions of the non-being mind, and you can also pull up a list of some of the suggested avoidance punishment thoughts. There's also the feeling wheel and the emotional chart. You can get those on the website. So there's lots of tools out there to help you identify what's going on. A lot of people, you know, they can tap into, you know, this is a situation and I feel some kind of upset, but then when it gets down to being specific about, you know, am I angry or am I sad or am I fearful? And, you know, keep in mind that anger is a drug to actually hide what lies underneath it. And so if you identify that you're feeling angry, stop for a moment, take a breath, drop the anger and see what lies underneath it. It's usually some kind of fear or uh, dread or uh, pain something that, you know, you really don't want to look at. And so it's easier to cover it up with anger because for some reason in this culture, we think that anger represents power and that fear or dread is a weakness. And that's not true. The anger just covers what's underneath. And, you know, even people when we worked in the prisons, if you can get them to drop their anger for just a moment, they would immediately go into tears or they would touch into the fear or the pain that lies underneath it. And they had learned, you know, the way to control that was to, you know, utilize anger to keep from looking what was underneath. And I think Michael has joined us, so I'm going to say welcome, Michael. And Terry is not on Thank board yet. So I think he was supposed to call in today to complete your all's conversation from yesterday. But he's not on there yet. I believe. I believe that was the plan, but we'll see. Beyond that, welcome, everybody. Delighted that you're here. We get to play this game one more time, Go take it all to one more level. And, you know, we were talking about, uh, and we pretty much covered at least a good part of the new Power Person worksheet. And uh, I had sent it out to recently the, the most updated one to several people who were in the intensive. There's actually one lady who was not in the intensive that I sent it to just because she's done a lot of this work over the years, somebody I've known for about a half a century. And uh, I got an interesting reply back. It's actually given me a chance to think a little bit more about the the real purpose behind going to to really going to depth. And her response was, thanks for sending it. Wow, I can tell a lot of thinking, processing, and dissecting with your detail-oriented mind has produced this. I get it and can follow you. However, just to give you my feeling, for me, this is way over the top, far more processing than I would have an interest in doing. I totally love the original power person handout that I'm familiar with. would love to see a skeleton of this data enhancing it as a one-pager. 
I could find that useful. Anyway, my thoughts. So it gave me a chance to really look at that, and you know, there's there are a couple of uh, scriptural quotes that comes to, come to mind, and one of them is that nothing will remain hidden; everything will be made known in the light of day. <clears throat> when I hear somebody saying, "Oh, I don't want to go to that much processing," what I'm saying is, or what I'm hearing is, there's something I would like to keep hidden from myself. I really don't want to look at it. But they've forgotten that their creators, the person who says, I don't want to do all that processing, I don't want to go to that depth, they've forgotten nothing will remain hidden as a creator. Everything in your unconscious is going to be made known in the light of day, except that it's going to sneak up on you and tend to kick you in the butt if you're not doing the work consciously. You remember they said, take care of the heart, for out of it are the issues in life. Take care of the heart. What does that word mean? Well, my offering would be that in the ancient Aramaic, the word heart, as with the word desert, are code words for the unconscious mind. So what they're saying is take care of your unconscious, and we might add to that your power person dynamics, because out of that is where your life flows. And so... For me, the the process, and you know, I put hundreds of hours into that. The process is one of how do I unravel the parts of me that can sneak up on me and surprise me, and throw my life for a loop. And you know, the the when you realize <clears throat> that this multi generational database called the body mind unit has been in development for thousands of generations. And that if you do the numbers in just 30 generations, literally, there are 1.6 billion lives and stored in you is the energetic pattern of everything that's gone on in those 1.6 billion lives. Now, my offering is we're not designed to have an unconscious. The purpose of that worksheet is to get rid of your unconscious. (laughs) So there's nothing that can sneak up and bite you that you're able to access anything that's in your structure at any time rather than its energy being lent to something in the world. And as we talked about with Terry yesterday, it ties right in, that conversation where if that energy pattern is in me and the potential is around me, the energy pattern in me will interact or resonate with the potential around me and that potential is going to be made manifest. It's going to come into expression in my life. Nothing will remain hidden. When you realize that literally our physical, mental, emotional, relational, and financial diseases are simply reflections of what we carry in our hearts, in our unconscious, it, it, it boggles my mind that somebody would say, oh, I don't want to process that. <laughs> I don't want to go to that depth. I'd rather it come bite me, and then I have to deal with it. And, you know, the, the danger, I mean, that's always, of course, an option. But for me, the danger of that is what if it comes and bites you when you're at a weakened moment and you just don't have the vitality or the ability, the support, the power to handle it? It can literally mean death. So my invitation to everybody is to, to step up to whatever level of willingness is appropriate for you. You know, some people pick up a worksheet and fill in three lines on it and never touch it again. And, you know, everybody's got a choice to make. But I invite you to really consider recognizing you are a creator 
what energetic patterns do you hold in you, especially based in the power person dynamic of the generations, that if you don't face it, if you don't deal with it, it's going to turn up as some sort of a dis-ease reflection in your cellular structure or in your emotions or in your thinking or in your relationships or in your finances or in your body or in your world. And willingness is the key to all of it. I'm willing, you know, that statement in number two in the worksheet, in the reality management, I'm willing to face and process out all dis-ease producing energies for all of my relations, for all of my generations. Elsewise, you're going to get to face them when they become manifest. You're going to get to face them in your world. So it was, uh, it was a nice piece of feedback for me, and I'll, of course, give her the feedback that I've just shared with you, and uh, the invitation to keep going to the next level of willingness. And one of the, the powerful pieces of the puzzle there for me is that as I build the skill, like any other skill, you know, I use the um, example, you probably heard me use it before, Way back, oh, 25 years ago, I ordered a new computer. And I got the computer and didn't work properly. So I called technical support and ended up on the phone with technical support for, I don't remember now, hours, two, three, four hours, I don't know. They couldn't fix it. Send it back, we'll fix it. Okay, I send it back. And they return it to me, ostensibly fixed. Same thing going on. So I'm on with technical support again. Send it back. We send it back. Get it back. It's the same. And I'm kind of, uh, as a last resort, we have or had, he's passed now, a friend in Kansas City who was a former NASA computer scientist, actually the man that uh, my son, Michael J., went to uh, computer school with. And uh, became uh, a, a genius nerd <laughs> in the computer realm. <clears throat> But I called Graham. He's actually the voice. If you've listened to the book, Why Is This Happening to Me Again on CD, Graham is the voice on that. He actually had started doing this work, just love, fell in love with it, used the tools. And one day he called me and said, Michael, I've been you know, ruminating on what my next piece of work is. And I got the intuitive message that I'm supposed to play Richard in the book and we're supposed to record the book. So... He had a studio. He was not only a former NASA computer scientist, but uh, a, uh, an actor. So he, he played the role of Richard very powerfully to the point where he actually ended up with heart pain and heart uncovered some heart challenges that he had. Really did some really deep work out of playing that role. In any event, I called Graham and I said, Graham, i got a problem. I, I know you're super busy and I uh, always refrain from calling you, but this one's kind of got... got you know, just taking too much. And so I explained what's going on with me. He says, well, here, go to a C-prompt. That was back in the days when I didn't even know what a C-prompt was, but he got to be there. He said, type in this string of commands. Type it in. Hit return. Tell me what it says. So I hit a return. Tell him what it says. He said, okay, type in this string of commands and hit a return. Okay? It's fixed. I was like, Graham, come on now, you're kidding me. You're Michael. Your computer's fixed. And it 
was. To me, relative to the work that we each need to do to clean up our own minds, each worksheet we develop, and in particular this one because it's so focused around power person dynamics, that worksheet's like Graham. Graham is to a, a, a computer what that worksheet is to dealing with our own unconscious dynamics. That's the whole objective is to clean it out, to develop the skill and the willingness. And as you develop that skill and willingness, like real major, major issues become relatively easy to just move through because you've developed the skill. Yeah, there's some heavy lifting to be done along the way. There's some skill building to be done, but whew, a whole lot better than living with unconscious dynamics intact. Ultimately, if you want to live a fully conscious life, you must face all of the unconscious dynamics in your heart or in your unconscious. And, you know, again, when they said, you must forgive from your heart the wrongs of your brother, that wasn't a bleeding heart statement. They were saying, whatever it is that you, your perceptual mind has put into your brain's image of your brother, you say it's the wrong of your brother, you got to go in and remove it from your heart. That wasn't a bleeding heart statement. You're supposed to, you know, forgive from your heart, some gushy kind of weird thing. They were saying, anything that you have put into your perception, the constructs of your mind about your brother, someone else, you've got to go into your own heart and work through it. Be free of it. So that's kind of the the uh for me the reason why and i and i thank you for that uh that feedback because it gave me a chance to really sit with it and contemplate it delightful and miss Jeannie, has terry joined the show let me flip back over hello Jeannie. I, loud and clear. Yeah, I was checking to see if we had gotten anything from the email. No, he's not with us yet. Oh, okay. <clears throat> Pardon me. <laughs> Excuse me. Well, he probably, while we're waiting I know he's been on, really busy lately. Say again? I uh, says so while we're waiting on him to get in, something that uh, triggered, I'm not sure what kind of uh, emotion yet, uh, we've been talking about emotions. Had a news flash uh, come up this morning, and I was reading it. And there was there's a woman in South Carolina who has been in prison for several years already, and they've declined her parole. And she, her partner, I don't know if it was her husband, but um, actually the police had been called several times over the last uh, before she was in prison for several years of him abusing her. And I guess he got a little out of control or something, and she stabbed him, and he died. And they've got her in prison for killing him, and they've denied her parole. And it's like, I guess because I experienced the uh, abuse of a partner in the past, it kind of triggered, you know, okay, so where... Is the justice in that? I don't know. Well, my take, honey, is sadly we live in a good old boy system, and the game is set for 
women to remain subservient, be barefoot and pregnant. You know, I was talking the other day, we watched that film about uh, uh, that Texas um, <sighs> Boys Town, Boys, what was Boys the name State. of the movie? Boys State. And, you know, here the uh, veteran organization has set up to uh, to gather, I think that were in that in the movie there were 1,700 young men uh, who were there to learn about politics, and it, to me it was just so absolutely appalling that here they are, they're going to train these young people about politics and how to participate in politics, and every one of them is male. I did some research on it afterward and found out, oh, they actually have a girl state too. Like, oh, okay, redeemed. But then, as I did a little more research, the, the numbers, there are actually only one set of numbers that have been published about the, uh, the extent of the girl state operation compared to the boys. And in the period that they had published, they spent $3.5 million on boys state and they spent $800,000 on girl state. If you look at 15, 14, pardon me, of the 15 states of the United States that have outrageous child and family poverty levels and call themselves pro-life, they all have one political leaning. And, you know, without, I hesitate because it's a big hot potato right now, but Sadly, what's called pro-life isn't pro-life at all. If you look, the number of children starving in those states that call themselves pro-life, guess what the worst one is of all of them? Guess what the worst one is? The, the one that had Roe versus Wade overturned. <laughs> well, what? The, the child poverty is outrageous. These states are passing laws that are eradicating protections for children working underage in dangerous professions. Slavers loved for women to have babies. In fact, they had camps, they had islands where they'd have dozens of women and they'd put one or two men out there and they'd force them to go from woman to woman to woman to woman, make them have babies, impregnate them, because babies are profit, babies are property. But when you don't take care of them, you're not pro-life. And barefoot and pregnant, sadly, is the mindset of the culture. We watched a thing, a, a movie last night called She Said. Same thing. The good old boy system set up to, to take care of the good old boys. And they're political people. Like there was a particular politician in, in Alaska recently. I don't remember exactly how recently. And they were talking about children being abused and dying at the hands of abusive parents. And this politician actually said, in public, go to YouTube, you can find it. He actually said, well, you know, there's a benefit to the country if this child dies from his abuse wounds, because then we don't have to take care of him. <laughs> I beg your pardon? And you're pro-life? I beg your pardon? This kind of stuff goes on all over. 
slavers were pro-baby, were pro-birth, put women in a certain position, and sadly, that's still a mindset that needs to be healed. That's part of the unconscious dynamics that we're talking about that need to be cleaned up. So I'm with you, sweetie, 100%, and I hear you loud and clear, and yeah, it needs to be cleaned up. And we actually need to have a system that that plays fair and is based in actual support of life. You know, the the, the states that talk about being pro-life, look at the statistics on their food deserts. Like major pieces of the population in those states, and it doesn't happen in the other states, <laughs> but major pieces of the population, the only food supply they've got is a 7-Eleven that sells sugar and fried donuts and coffee and garbage. Like there's no food in it. The healthcare deserts, look at the statistics on healthcare deserts, and it's a tragedy for women and babies. You look at women in some of these states where they do provide them with some kind of healthcare during pregnancy, and 30 days after the birth of the child, the healthcare's cut off. <laughs> no more visits to the doctor, no more support. <laughs> you know, it's <sighs> the whole culture needs to be reset, my take, on on the principle of Rachma and really integrate the principles of the Aramaic Beatitudes, which one of the core principles of the Aramaic Beatitudes is to develop a mindset of just and fair. Is it just and fair to keep that woman in prison because she was abused and protected herself? There's nothing just about that. But I hear you, and it's definitely there are issues that need to be addressed. People need to step up to the plate in their own minds, in their own lives, in their own relationships, and clean it up, and then take it out to the larger culture. To me, that's all one of the foundation pieces of why we're doing this work, the way we do it, and making it as widely available as we possibly can to put it out there and, uh, and give people access. Does that fit for you, sweetie? Any other thoughts in that regard? Yeah. No, it does. It fits. And I've got work to do on it, too, to clean it up in me. I'm with you. And Terry has joined us. So I'm going to turn off the microphone. Hi, Terry. Are you ready to continue from yesterday? Hey, Terry, you with us? I think Terry has his phone on and maybe listening from a distance. It sounds like he's making lunch, maybe. In the event, we'll continue with uh, with that other conversation till till Terry kicks back in. Uh, the healthcare deserts, the food deserts, the poverty, the kids that go to bed hungry at night. The majority of them are in, in red states. It's really sad, but that's the truth. The majority of them are in red states. And it's time for us to wake up and, and bring change to it. Time for us to really, truly return to the presence of love in human life. And yes, we are brothers keepers. Uh, the, 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 whole, <laughs> the whole game is so bizarre. It's, it has to be outrageous. So it sounds like Terry's not near his phone right now. He's working around. He's probably put it on and forgotten about it. Oh, I think I hear him. Is that Terry? Hello? 
Well, hey there, sir. We've been listening uh, to you kind of clanging around there. Looks like you uh, sounds like you're in the middle of making lunch. I didn't know I hit the the button. You it didn't. We were expecting you, so we oh, you didn't. Okay. We just were expecting you, so we saw you come up and you just hit the button. Yeah. So, so anyway, did you get to listen to what Jeannie did with the uh, with the show from yesterday and getting it uh, translated or uh, dictated? Did you just go through it. Uh, no, I I did see it and I responded back to it. Now, what was your question? Did I what? I just wondered if you'd gotten to read through it and and how it. Uh, it came through. I know it, that uh, when they translate like that, they're not perfect. They need some uh, some editing and some work. You're, it, it was really a lot of words. Let's put it that way. And um, <coughs> uh, what, as I was reading through it, I noticed that uh, your your side was was came through loud and clear. And I've got some work to do on my diction, and um, I'm going to need to go back through there and edit a little bit. But the gist of it was. Uh, abundantly there so we got we got most of it there and uh, i'm excited about it awesome and did i understand from your response that you're ready you're going to go in and you're going to get all of the shows from the last 12 years translated and put in writing and get them edited that's awesome what a great project to take on terry <laughs> that is a project excuse me I just, uh, i'll do a calculation on what the timeline will look like and get back to you on that yeah, right. Probably 20 years. Probably more than 12. <laughs> it would but be anyway. a lot. It would be a lot. For sure. Yeah, there have been, there's been a lot of, uh, there have been a lot of really amazing conversations on this show in the last 12 years. Some really powerful work has been done. Some people have just really keyed in and moved through major, major issues. It's been, a, it's been an interesting, uh, interaction in process. So what I've noticed so what's is, most... what I've noticed is as soon as I make a, a level of a commitment, all these things come up. And I get all these phone calls and people bothering me and it brings up all my irritation. And so uh, that's what I've been dealing with for the last 40 minutes. Okay, I was going to have a great gift. Yeah, a little pleasant afternoon (laughs) interlude on the radio show. And all these people won't leave me alone. (laughs) Well, an opportunity to learn to forgive that frustration (laughs) and that little tweak of hostility that comes up when people, quote unquote, bother you, right? That's right. It's like there's a whole whole pile of it. And uh, now I'm at a place, I'm sitting down, and it's like now I can't find my notebook. I have my little notes on all that uh, our conversation yesterday. So I'm not I'm not very helpful today. Uh, one of the things that we were I remember was to piece around uh, the possibility of the uh, or what happens when the camera could see the fetus at the different stages of development. Right. Mm-hmm. And so... So you still have some thoughts or questions about that? Like, how is that possible? Yeah. i got to find my notes. 
It was like, okay, the protective, the egg was acting as a uh, screening device or uh, a, uh, a filter and determining which one of the sperm would be allowed to enter. Wouldn't right? it be interesting to know the the reasoning or the the uh, mechanism behind why selectivity happens there? I mean, we could theorize it, but wouldn't it be interesting to know exactly yeah. what the mechanism is that's working? Like, I mean, is it this egg is designed for one particular being to come in and it takes this particular set of characteristics of, from this sperm out of the millions that are there to to create the body that that being is going to need, that would be my, you know, my, if I were required to create a conclusion or a theory about it, that would be it, but who knows? Who knows? And so so there would be the law of resonance that uh, uh, could potentially kick in, and so now there's a resonance between this uh, unfertilized egg and the, and the, and the sperms, and um, I would imagine that there would be more than one perfect candidate, but a lot of them that are not even close, you know. And so the one that uh, uh, is presented this the closest or meets a certain set of criteria, well, then it's, it's in and, and develops. And that um, the first theory was, oh, well, that's going to create the perfect set of potential situations that would allow for the healing and clearing of this energy here. That's the level of, of life. Yeah, right. That, that there's yep. potential that now, and, and then I start thinking, well, what, happen, what happens if that um, fetus was just isolated from the external influences or it was controlled you know, and then of course my first uh, thing that popped up on that was like, well, now you got to deal with the genetics still, so it's not just that simple. It's like uh, what I was struggling with was the concept of of some pure form of uh, being, you know, something that was unharnessed or, or you know what I'm trying to say at all. I, I hear you, and I think that each being is that already, and the form that we come into has its energetic and generational patterns that are going to play out. And, you know, maybe again, theorizing, perhaps in order for each being who is that pure essence of love, to learn what they need to learn, there's a certain form that they need that's going to create a certain set of experiences throughout a period of a lifetime. Right. That's the most logical thing to me. And so would, would taking that back, would there, be, would there have been a time in the beginning of all this where There were more, uh, what, I don't know the word, what, what would be the best word, like 
more perfect humans or or closer, you know, did it start out as like this uh, immaculate conception kind of thing where it was all, uh, you know, beautiful and then slowly became distorted and now it's trying to work its way back. That's a lot of a lot of conjecture in the conversation as far as trying to figure all that out. Um, we'll probably never figure it out. Yeah, we'll never figure it out. I can let go of that. <laughs> I can let go of that one out. And then, then but we I was can forgive it. About the, forgive it. And then, what about the concept of woman? I wanted to know what the uh, definition of woman was as opposed to man. Because now we've got the woman that produces this egg, this set of circumstances that's the protector or the presenter of this uh, egg and that its job is to, you know, make sure that what happens is the highest and best of that particular situation. So my question is, what's the difference between man and woman? Well, aside from the obvious, aside from the obvious physiological differences, mm-hmm. there certainly seem to be many mental and emotional variants. And if we look at it from a principal point of view, an energetic principle, mm-hmm. we could break it down into that which originates an originative faculty which has the program, sets the program, and then the matrix into which the program unfolds, which would be the receptive or the executive aspect of life, the part that executes whatever the program is. And, of course, we each have both the originative and executive faculties. On a physiological level, the woman is the one with the the egg that carries the child and and carries out the expression to term. And we each have this capacity to originate. And ultimately, I think that's one of the purposes of life is to, to rather than just unfold whatever's in there already, to develop the higher faculty to be able to literally bring in something new. You know, if you go to the creation story, it talks about go forth and multiply and replenish the face of the earth. You know, most everybody listened to the multiply part of it, but nobody really understood what that word replenish meant. And what it, in Aramaic, what it, it comes down to is the instruction was bring the creation to completion. Do your part in originating what the ultimate expression of the creation is for. And as you do that, then you bring the creation to completion. So to me, that would be about developing our ability to tap into the higher energetic patterns, capture them, bring them into expression. That make sense? Yes. So what what was what is the Aramaic? definition of man and woman. Is there one that you um, have uh, It's not something I've ever looked at. No. 
Not some, I'm, no. I'm not saying it isn't there. It's not something I've looked at. So I couldn't be give you any kind of specifics in that regard. So I wonder where the pre- prefix "wo" because it's "wo," you know. Of course, it's a prefix to the man. Probably. But this well, the well is you've the got a, root a, a well, a, a person, a human with a womb. Woman would be, I think, one probably one place the the word would originate, at least in this language. Yes, that would make sense. And then and, come all the opportunities mm-hmm. to clarify who we are and bring ourselves into full expression in this world. And with that, let's get back to the camera for just a second. And, okay. Uh, the pictures of of the the fetus in the different stages of development. So. How do we get a picture of each those, of those out of this fertilized egg? Yeah, would they? Yeah, and would they be potentialities? Because, or is it once it has that picture? I mean, it would have to be a potentiality, wouldn't it? Well, the, the would it would be at different stages of unfolding. Let's use a uh, an analogy here. Let's imagine that we've got a really awesome supercomputer, and you know, if we go to the movies, you look at CGI, computer-generated graphics, and some of the stuff they can do is just amazing. And mm-hmm. the programming to do that, you know, the first thing that the program has to do is the computer has to boot up. So there's a program for doing that. If I know how to open the hard drive of the computer, if I know how to get into log into the hard drive of the computer, I can read that initiating program. I can read the program that loads the video faculty for that CGI. I can read the program that uh, loads the audio component of that. I can read the program that sews all those things together if I've got the technology to do it. And so they'd be each different stages of expression of that one program. And if I've got the technology to access it, I can look at all of that. Otherwise, all I can see is the end result, the computer-generated graphic on the screen. So to me, the camera, the tuning mechanism that uh, is on this camera would be the device with which we can read what the program is for today, what the program is for a month from now, what the what the unfolding of the program for that fetus is going to be two months, three months, six months, a year, five years, ten years. If we've got the technology to be able to tap in, we could obviously read that and know what the ultimate expression is going to be unless that expression is changed by someone who either adds to or removes from that unfolding program. And we could literally, if we had the technology to tune into it the same way we've got the technology to go in and read the programs on a computer, we'd be able to tell what that whole life is going to look like, plus or minus whatever's removed or added. Right. 
And that's the question that was bubbling around. It's like, oh, does this fight open up to predestiny, or is it more of like a potentiality? And I think just having this conversation uh, lends lends it to I mean, uh, interpretation more of potentiality than a predestinated type of thing. Well, my take would be if it's never if a conscious being never interacts with it then it's totally predestined. Whatever's there is what's going to unfold. That's just going to be it. Mm. And then and then, when we wake up to who we are, and that's one of the objectives of this work, you know, people who, I forget who it was that said it, but somewhere back in my training, somebody said, a hundred million million people live and die every century and never even know that they've lived. All they've done is unfolded oh whatever was was in them never consciously waking up to have a conscious thought, just playing out whatever's in them. So that would be predestination. Then somebody wakes up and says, ah, I don't have to go with unfolding what's in here. I can change it. I can originate something new. Now we've got potential. I can find the technology with which to remove the directions that this predestined thing is going to go, like, for instance, 20 generations ago, there was this big murder that happened in the family, and, you know, the way generational patterns work, maybe this one re-expresses every three generations. And my generation, that's what's up for expressing. Thanks, but I'm not interested in murdering or being murdered, so I'm going to go and I'm going to forgive that automatic unfolding program that's been going on for generations in the bloodline and I'm going to replace it with something conscious, something new. So I'm now going to hand it a whole new potential. I'm going to develop a set of faculties with which to conceive of something that's never been conceived of in the bloodline. Now that clarifies a lot in my mind because I lived the potentiality of suicide that was genetic, and I saw the pattern, and then through a combination that I would take of this, up as work, the predestination. Mm, yeah, that, that to me that, would be the was, was that was pre- all predestined. That was written in your genes. Right, right. Yeah, that's what I was trying to say. But yeah, that was. Not it did it was predestined, but there was the ability was introduced to interrupt that to change it exactly to change it pa- pattern patternus interruptus mm-hmm. same <laughs> thing with the criminality mm-hmm. that's it mm-hmm. And so that it was converts it all from predestined to, as I saying, shift it all from predestined to potentiality. What do, what do I choose to originate? What If I strengthen my originative faculty, you know, um, Thomas Edison, if you, uh, if next time you're in Florida, if you get down around um, uh, just south of Venice, the homestead of Thomas Edison is there, and they, they still have his laboratory there. And they have the old iron bed that he used to lay on. And when he was working on an invention and just couldn't get what, you know, a new idea, couldn't get what it was about, they explained that what he used to do is he had an iron ball, 
he'd go and lay down, and he'd put the iron ball in one hand, have that hand laying over the edge of the bed. And when he would go into that state just before sleep, his arm would relax, the iron ball would drop, and it would wake him up. And what he said was that's where he got his creative ideas. That's where he got his inventions was in that moment. So my take, my my understanding of that would be that's where he was able to quiet the noise of his own carbon-based memory, his own predestined mind, to listen to the mind that holds the unrealized potential and bring it into expression. And he invented all kinds of things. Mm. One of the things that I would hear you say in the workshop was that we have the ability to change those yet unborn and uh, alter the uh, possibilities. I heard it. I heard. I misheard it. What I heard was that if I did my work, my children wouldn't have to go through what I went through. Well, I think when I got clear on it was that by doing the work, then they had the opportunity or the potentiality to then bypass some of those horrible things. You follow what I'm saying right. there? Yeah, that would be my take, is that you can't yeah. force them through that gate. Yeah. But, you know, right. I, I use the example of we've got a sliding glass door here in the, the back of the house, and it's stuck, and it's, I mean, it takes a Superman to get it to open. And so I and my kids have never been able to open. It's been closed forever. But if I choose to do the work that it takes to get all the encrusted old garbage out of it and lubricate it, put new wheels on it, then I I don't open that door for them, but I make that door easier for them to open. So, yeah, they're going to get to whatever is in them, but because I've brought the skills into the genetic structure of our family system to do it differently, they're going to be able to trade on those skills, enhance those skills, and have an easier time of, of walking through it than I did. You know, what I clean up, they're not going to have to face on the same level that I did. And when I bring in new skills those skills are going to be easier for them to access and express than they were for me with the type of inclinations or in the context of our conversations, the type of predestinations that were in me. Jeannie, were you going to say something, sweetie? I was just going to say Terry's friend Dan has his hand up. I'm going to turn him on as well. Oh, great. Let's get Dan in here to say hello. Hey, young man, welcome. Hey, yeah, I wasn't sure if you could uh, bring me in too, but I've I was talking to Terry Pryor, and I, I, I went to the um, gym, and I ended up leaving, and, and I got on right when you guys were talking about um, the womb and then into camera, and then, and then where I really picked up with it is the uh, the potentialities and kind of predestination versus free choice, and it just really inspired and resonated with me of like um, 
you know, are we just playing out the programming that's there or are we becoming aware, taking responsibility, and then due to that being able to exercise, you know, the faculty of freely choosing? And, you know, when when I, like, do this work, one of the questions that keeps coming up for me is, um, you know, I think about the will and I think about, you know, I am responsible for every reality that is uh, within my system. However, at the same time, some of those things either were installed or taught to me or at least feel like they were because I was so young. Um, and, and sort of the, one of the conclusions I came to, and this was in talking to Terry, is that even if I learned an emotional pattern through a trauma or a, a demonstration or some sort of learning experience when I was two months old, and I have no way to conceptualize it, the path to freedom is that I am responsible for the reality that is within me, and I have to understand that there was, even at, at, you know, two months old, I'm using that example because that's, you know, to me, before verbal conceptual understanding, even if that was the age I was when a reality was, to speak in a conventional way, installed, it, it's my job to recognize that there was a part of me, there was a faculty that assented to taking on that reality. And when I access the part of me that agreed to take on the reality, I'm accessing my freedom and my free will. Therefore, by being responsible, I now have a choice because I'm admitting that right even if I was a passive recipient of trauma, there's still a deeper part of me, the part that is free, that agreed to take on that framework. Anyway, I was just really yes. inspired. I wanted to share that. You guys are awesome. Yes. I'm with you 100%. I, I think you're right on track with that. And my take is that, you know, if something happened at two months and energetically, I just, you know, as you say, it was installed. It became part of my my underlying dynamic. The The power of the tool of forgiveness is that it doesn't matter if it's 50 years later and I have very little chance of recalling that event. If I'm committed to walking through life as a human being, as the presence of love, and a circumstance presents itself that resonates that pattern from two months, I can access the original event, though not necessarily cognitively, through forgiveness. I can literally, by canceling the goal and collapsing the perceptual construct that's projected from that experience I had when I was two months old, by collapsing that today, 50 years later, I drop into the root of that experience as the presence of love, you know, step four in the worksheet to bring love present that literally when true human life, the true presence of love is in my physiology, then as that reality construct drops into its root and the root is exposed to the presence of love, that root experience that goes back to two months or maybe it was, you know, the second month in utero even. Or it might have been something that happened ten generations ago. But by applying forgiveness now, I can drop into that root energy 
bring it forward, sometimes cognitively and sometimes not, just energetically, but bringing it forward in the presence of love means there's a transmutation, there's a dissolution of the impact of that experience. To me, that's part of the genius of the forgiveness process from the first century Aramaic. Yeah, because I, you know, I often have the feeling that I'm I'm walking through these sort of feelings and textures that are like very uncanny, like they're familiar and nostalgic, but I also don't know. I have no idea where they come from, and I wonder if that's just stuff kind of bubbling up. Um, that I don't have the cognitive picture of, but it's still kind of coming out. That, that would be my take. You know, every reality, you know, when we recognize the mind is the generator of the world we see. If you haven't watched it yet, go to YouTube and Google, let me get his name, um, It's right on the tip Neil of my Seth. tongue. He's a cognitive. Neil Seth. Anil, A-N-I-L-S-E-T-H, Seth. And it's a TED Talk. And as a cognitive scientist, what he explains is that the world we think we see <laughs> through our eyes isn't there in any way, shape, or form. Our eyes show it to us, but that it's our brain that literally creates that perceptual construct. Course in Miracles says perception is a skill made up by us to take the place of the actuality of the world, what's what's really truly there. And so mm. when I recognize that everything that I think I see with my eyes is generated by my brain, it's generated out of something. I'm only cognitive of of the tip, I only have cognition of the tip of the iceberg, the rest of it's unconscious. When I know how to collapse the tip of the iceberg, it collapses in on the root energies that produced it. Now that's why I have access to that experience that happened when I was two. And if love is present and there's anything out of line with truth, from that experience that happened when I was two months old, by exposure to love, it's going to heal instantly, right on the spot. And sometimes it'll be cognitive. Sometimes, I mean, I've had memories. uh, I've had people who've had memories back in the womb while they were still in the womb of things that happened, very specific things. But cognitive awareness isn't a necessity. Collapsing the perception in on itself is what gives us access to be able to process the energy and free ourselves of it. Whether it ever becomes cognitive or not is irrelevant. An example of that is Ryan when he was in utero. Go ahead, Jean. Um, I was carrying twins and at the four four and a half month mark, I lost the girl. I didn't talk about that. Uh, Ryan was the survivor, and that's my son. And uh, years later, we had a discussion, and he said he remembered having a sister. Mm. Yeah, and sometimes it. 
he had he had the memory and sometimes we don't have the memory there's another experience that happened with ryan we were over there at their house having dinner one day and uh and they were talking about doing laundry and their their deal was if ryan does laundry he falls asleep he just sits down and goes to sleep so he can't do laundry so he does the dishes she does the laundry and we explained or Jeannie explained when Ryan was four in preschool they had been at uh, uh, the, the preschool and the woman who ran the school was washing some clothes and didn't know that the cat had got into the dryer and the cat was killed and the cat was the friend of course of all these preschool kids and when we were explaining that though Ryan had no cognitive awareness Ryan's wife says oh my god that's why every time he goes to the dryer he's he, he wants to check the dryer for the cat he had no remembrance of that but that's what he would do as an adult man he'd check before that the dryer was ever turned on yet to check for the cat he had no idea why he did that until that day it's like oh that's where it came from so yeah there are all kinds of those influences and to me the genius of collapse perception by recognizing it's driven by a goal and be willing to drop into the underlying energetic pattern is just like such a huge piece of information to have to understand for healing and being free of past influences amazing and the show is going to cut us off any second but we can continue the conversation till it uh it does cut us off. Any other thoughts for you, Terry? No, we've maybe lost Terry. Any other thought for you, Dan? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I just, you know, I feel life is like this swirling mass of energy, and that's in our in our true state of love. There is no crystallized conceptual realities, and getting back to that involves, you know, the forgiving, the surrendering of all these frameworks and realities we've created. Not to say they they can't be useful, but the cleansing of that, I don't know, it's just really kind of inspired me that that's, that's what the it. work is. Were you in or did you have a conversation with Terry about yesterday's show where we were talking about quantum physics and how the quantum wave collapses due to the observer effect? Yes, and that really clicked for oh, me. Good. I was talking cool. to him before yeah. before the show. Awesome. Cool. All right, well, it's telling me in my ear that it's all over, so uh, maybe we can continue this conversation tomorrow if appropriate. And otherwise, thank you, everybody, for joining us. Create the best year yet of your eternal life. It's an awesome gift to give the world. Blessings.